0: Open your Bibles, if you would, now to Philippians chapter 1. We're continuing our study in the book of Philippians, and just thank the Lord for just a a wonderful book that this is. We really see the heart of the Apostle Paul and learn how that he uh, was a contented Christian. How many of you ever wake up in the morning, the first thing that you do when you get out of bed, I mean, you're just angry you 're just angry because you had to get out of bed. you get up and you, and you, you know you head to the bathroom in the morning, you stub your toe and and you 're just mad at the world with the first thing and you get up. Uh, I get up most mornings go down uh, to our to our kitchen area, sit down, and look over the newspaper a little bit and sometimes you just look over the things that are there and, and story after story, page after page, there is bad news. And you're sitting there thinking you just got that attitude. What is wrong with this world? What's going on here? It just can't get any worse. What if you had all those things going on? And then the first thing that you did when you went outside the house in the morning, there was your neighbor standing with a baseball bat, and he hit you in the shins as soon as you walked out the door. It'd be very hard to have a good attitude, wouldn't it? It'd be hard to face something like that every single day of your life. And you wonder, how in the world could you be happy if you lived under those kind of circumstances? I mean, everything is, is going wrong. Well, this is the kind of thing that the Apostle Paul faced. And what he teaches us here in the book of Philippians is how that we can be happy in the middle of adverse circumstances. Now, what if you were like the Apostle Paul, that you had those kinds of things going on in your life every single day? You weren't free, even like we're free, to worship the Lord here. But every single day, you're faced with some kind of bad thing that's just going to happen. How difficult would it be for you to put on a happy face every single day if that's what you faced? I think it'd be very difficult. That'd be a hard thing for us to do. But that is exactly what the Lord expects from us. And He doesn't expect us to put on this fake happiness. Because if you really don't have it deep down in your heart, and there's not something going on there, the facade of fake happiness is going to fall very quickly. Paul teaches us how to be happy in adverse circumstances. So as Christians, we ought not let things discourage us and get to us. But people ought to see something in us that's so radically different from the way that they live their lives, that they truly do desire to have what we have. We're going to talk a little bit about that tonight. Never should we be worried about, what's the world coming to? Because we needn't expect that the world's going to get any better. Things are getting worse all of the time. And so what we really ought to be thinking about, who's coming into the world that's better? And that's the Lord Jesus Christ. And if people will simply put their faith and trust in Him, if they will believe Him, they'll have the desires of their heart, they'll have a life-changing experience and then they'll really have hope. And that's what we need to tell people. Let's, let's stand and let's read God's Word tonight. Philippians chapter 1, and I want to begin reading in verse number 27. Philippians chapter 1, verse number 27. Only let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ, that whether I come and see you or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs, that ye stand fast in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, and in nothing terrified by your adversaries, which to them is to them an evident token of perdition, but to you of salvation and that of God. For unto you it is given in the behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, having the same conflict which he saw in me, and now here to be in me. Heavenly Fathers, we come to you tonight. We are indeed thankful again for each one who's come out to hear your word. I just pray, Lord, that there might be something in the message tonight that will help somebody. And if we look to you and listen to your word, we know that there will be. Thank you for this, Lord, and, and bless in the message. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. My subject this evening is is Conduct Becoming. And I could have easily have have titled the message, Does Your Calling Match Your Conduct? In some way or another, everything that we read throughout the book of Philippians will take us right back to chapter number 1, verse number 6, where we see practical applications of the doctrine that Paul presents in that verse. Now there, Paul is talking about perseverance. He's talking about how that, that God has started to work in you. He saved you. The, the result of God's work in you is that you have become a Christian, that you've been uh, translated from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. An operation has taken place in your soul. And so what you are to do as a Christian, as a practical application of that verse, is to show on the outside to present yourself in such a way that people can see the change that's taken place. There are multiple degrees of separation between a child of God and a person who doesn't know the Lord. And because you know the Lord and you have this new life in Christ, we are to strive to live for Him. In verse number 27, the Scripture says, Only let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ. I want to speak to you first of all tonight about the calling of a higher life. We've been called to a higher life. God has called us to be different from the world. Now there's a very familiar passage that all of us know in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. There Paul said, "...if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new." And so that means that everything that you are, everything that you were before, I should say, those things are gone. The desires that you had before, the attitudes, the satisfactions that you had in life, the goals that you have in life, those things are all to be changed, and they are changed when a person becomes a believer in Christ. Now, in our text verses there, the Bible calls this our conversation. Now, we're used to looking at that word in the King James Version, and we've been taught, rightly, that it means our manner of life. It means our conduct. And that's just an old King James word, and it's a very good translation to say that this means our conduct. But in this particular place, Paul actually has more in mind than simply our conduct, because this carries with it the idea that a person's behavior would reflect well on the citizen as being a citizen uh, of the country to which he belongs. So Paul is using the word here more in the sense of citizenship, and, and it's to take pride in the fact, and I don't mean a self-pride, but take pride in the, in the fact that we've been saved by God, we represent a, a heavenly country, and we're to reflect well upon that country in which we're, we are citizens of. Now, as Paul writes it to the Philippians... He uses this kind of word because they would very well understand what he means about taking pride in citizenship. These are people in in a Roman colony. They're not there in the city of Rome, but they uh, they are a people that's become a part of Rome. And they prided themselves of being citizens of Rome and having all the privileges that people in Rome enjoyed. And they took that much further than we do as Americans because they they believed that their entire welfare, their social well-being was tied to the entire welfare of the state. And so they put that above even their own selves. They prided themselves in that citizenship that they were citizens of Rome. Now here in America, what we concentrate most upon is individual rights. And everybody's always thinking about things that, that are owed to us, everything that belongs to us. Now, I think it's really sad to say that a welfare state in America has produced a generation of people that want more and more and more from the government. Not only expecting that they get more, but actually demanding that they get more because they think that that's their right. Now this might not be the most politically correct thing for me to say this evening, and some of you may not even like that I say it. But as bad as Hurricane Katrina was on the citizens of New Orleans, those people there, I think their behavior was as bad or worse than what happened to them. And what I mean is that you had people there that weren't thankful for things that they'd received. They didn't, they didn't just be thankful that they were alive. They actually demanded. And they cursed the very government that for years had fed them, took care of them, protected their freedoms, and they cursed the very government that they should have been asking and thankful for help rather than demanding it. No amens. All right. I said, maybe that's not the political thing to say in California, the right thing to say. The Roman idea was much different than that. I mean, a citizen of Rome had a much different idea than that. Now, they didn't live under, like, communism. They weren't forced to give their allegiance to the state. They gladly gave their allegiance because that was best for the whole citizenship. So they were proud of that association with Rome, and they were citizens of that country, and they're not going to do anything that would endanger or bring dishonor upon their citizenship. So that's really what Paul has in mind when he writes to them and he talks about citizenship in heaven. When he says, conversation. And what he means is, never bring reproach upon the country of which you are a citizen. And what he means is, you are citizens of heaven. And in fact, when you get into chapter 3, he uses the very same language when he says, our conversation is in heaven. So we're citizens of heaven, so we ought to have conduct becoming of a citizen of that country. So, what does Paul mean here uh, specifically when he says, let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ? I think, first of all, that he means this that we are called to personal integrity. The only thing that a Christian really has to trade on in this world is his character. And if your character's not right, then you can skip all the points that I'm going to come to next because it's really not going to do any good as far as your effect on other people and reaching people with the gospel. I mean, if your personal habits are offensive, and if your habits uh, by your speech and by your attitude are not right, I mean, if those things are wrong, you can forget about reaching people with the gospel of Christ. If you're a person who claims that you have been inwardly changed, And there's not a demonstration of that change on the outside. You can just write it down. You are not going to influence people for the Lord. They're just not going to listen to you. You see, the people of the world know something about Christianity. They've already got expectations. Uh, they've, they've heard about Christianity. They know that Christianity means that the person who ascribes to this is supposed to live at a different lifestyle, a different level, has a different moral attitude. He has a totally different outlook upon the world. Now, they've been conditioned to see what Christians, you know, really do act like. And what they think is Christianity can't be the right kind of religion, many of them don't, because it produces a generation of hypocrites. People that really just don't show that an inward change has, has happened to them. And so what we actually demonstrate is hypocrisy in our religion. Now, I began speaking here about being angry with the world. I mean, just getting up and showing that bad attitude. And here's what you'll find out. If your attitude is the same as all the rest of the people at work, and if you're sour all the time because bad things happen to you, when you go in depressed and despondent about your life, then who's going to want what you claim to have? Nobody wants that. How are unregenerate people who are going through life, enduring life rather than enjoying life, going to seek what you have when they see those bad attitudes in you? So if you're not a better em- employee than the guy that sits in the cubicle next to you, and if you're not the cheerful salesperson who, who acts like he loves his work rather than hates being at work, who who's going to want to be part of your team? I mean, who, who really wants... To to have what you have christian people are to show something different so you can't be the type of person who cheats a little bit on the time clock here and there and you can't be the employee that shows up for work just a little bit late every single day and expect that people are going to see something different in your life you're, you're not to be the kind of neighbor who throws a fit because the other guy's leaves blow into your lawn if you throw, if you have that kind of an attitude, you are not going to reach people. So if you carry on just like everybody else, if you can tell a lie and it really doesn't bother you, and and if you can cheat a little bit here and there, if you can quarrel with people, if you can gossip just like everybody else does, if you're somebody that's uh, you know got a short fuse on a big firecracker, you are not going to reach people. Don't expect that you're going to influence anybody in your life with the gospel. So this is one thing that Christians are called to. We are called to a life of personal integrity. Number two, or secondly, we're called to a life of faithful tenacity. Paul says here, whether I come and see you or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs that ye stand fast. And so that means that no matter what the opposition that comes, you remain true to your calling. You stand fast. Now today, just like it's always been, it's much easier to compromise your position than it is to stand for your position. Standing for something requires some effort. And standing for something will often put you right in the line of fire for ridicule and for scorn. Standing, in the case of the Philippians, meant that they would endure persecution. You see, Satan's not going to to let you off easy. I mean, Satan's not going to come to you and say, well, I see that you're trying to stand for something, so maybe I best pick on somebody else. I need to find somebody who's not standing for anything. No, fact of the matter is, the more that you decide to stand for something, the harder that Satan will come at you. I mean, when you try to hold your ground, when you say, I have this position, when I'm going to have faithful tenacity, that's when Satan comes harder. And so when he throws that first spear and it doesn't stick, he doesn't stop, he just goes back and gets a bigger spear. And he's going to try to penetrate your armor in any way that he can. You know, there are people that have come to me and they've told me, they'll say, Pastor, uh, I I know the damage that I've done in my life by not standing for something. And they say, you know what I really need to do? I'm determined to get my life back in order. I'm going to uh, stop the bad habits that I have. I'm going to get rid of the bad attitudes. I'm going to stop running around with the wrong crowd. And I say to them, that's wonderful. I'm glad that you decided to do that. I'm glad you've decided you're going to stand up now for the Lord. I'm so happy that you're going to get your life back in order, that you'll get rid of those secret sins that are in your life. But I also don't fail to tell them this, your journey has just become harder. When you decide you're going to stand, it gets harder because your determination to serve the Lord only increases Satan's opposition. But thank the Lord for this. God gives more grace. There's a songwriter who wrote it this way. He said, He giveth more grace as our burdens grow greater. He sendeth more strength as our labors increase. To added afflictions, he addeth his mercy. To multiplied trials, he multiplies peace. When we have exhausted our store of endurance, when our strength has failed, ere the day is half done, when we reach the end of our hoarded possessions, our Father's full giving has only begun. His love has no limits. His grace has no measure. His power has no boundary known unto men. For out of his infinite riches in Jesus, he giveth and giveth and giveth again. You see, there's no reason, really, for a Christian to give up. There's no reason for us not to persevere in our faith because God, God's love, has no limit. His grace has no measure. His power has no boundary known unto man. So we don't have an excuse We can't say, I can't remain faithful because all the power that we need is right there in God's storehouse. What we have to do is just go get it. He promises us that it's there for us. And the Apostle Paul said, where sin did abound, grace did much more abound. So we're called to this. We're called to personal integrity and to faithful tenacity. Thirdly, we're called to spiritual unity. He says that ye stand fast in one spirit with one mind, striving together. John Donne wrote many, well, centuries ago, he wrote a statement, probably all of you have heard at least this portion of it. He said, no man is an island. And if you read the full statement by John Donne, obviously what he meant was that all of us are involved with mankind. Our actions always affect other people. Now in the spiritual realm, that is certainly true. Your actions will affect others. Now, there are many Christians who try to forge out on their own and they try to stand alone for the Lord. And they may say, well, you know, I really don't need the church. I don't don't need the church. I mean, I can be a Christian. I don't need that fellowship. I I don't need all these things that go. I I really don't need that spiritual unity that you're talking about right now. I remember a a couple of years ago, I was having a conversation with a young man and and I asked him, I said, what church are you a member of? And he said, he said he was a Christian. I said, what church are you a member of? And he said, oh, I'm not a member of a church. He said, I don't like organized religion. Well, if you don't like organized religion, really, I mean, truthfully, if you don't like the church, you can just mark resume your a Christian off of your resume. Just mark that one off. Because Christ said he loved the church. The Bible says he loved the church, and he gave himself for it. In fact, he came to organize a church. That's why he came to this world, to choose out of people for his name, and he organized his churches. So if you say, well, I don't like organized religion, I don't like the church, mark it off, you don't like Christ. You don't love Christ. All of us need to be a part of God's church. Now, inside of that church, we have a demand for spiritual unity. When Paul wrote to these people at Philippi, he expected that they would be a unified people and that they would be of one mind. So he writes here, he says, Stand fast in one spirit. And if you have your Bible there, you'll notice that the word spirit is not capitalized. That means that he's not speaking about the Holy Spirit. Now, of course... We need to be unified with the Holy Spirit. But that's not what he's talking about here. He's talking about communion with each other. And he's talking about all of us having the same mind and sharing in the same principles. And you, those of you that are members of Breham Baptist Church, we need to be a unified group. And that means that you need to stand behind what the church teaches. You stand behind the pulpit. You stand behind your pastor. You stand behind the leadership. And what you always do, you seek to edify the body of Christ. Now, we've all been made partakers of Christ if we're Christians, and the Bible commands that we are to be unified with Christ, and you'll find out when you're unified with Christ, you will be unified with each other. So some people say, I don't need the church. I don't need that. Well, it's the same as saying, I don't need Christ. Now, that brings me to the fourth area of our calling. We're called to personal integrity, faithful tenacity, spiritual unity, and fourthly, to doctrinal purity. He says that ye may stand fast in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. I think it's appropriate that in this list, he comes down to the end and he says, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Because the gospel itself and the faith what he's speaking of the faith is the undergirder. I mean, this is what enables everything that comes before this statement. I mean, that's what, that's what enables that, that personal integrity and that faithful tenacity, the spiritual unity. It's all enabled by our doctrinal purity and standing for the faith. That enables it. You remember when we were studying the book of Ephesians, I made over and over the statement that right doctrine yields right practice. And to the extent that your doctrine is wrong then your practice will also be wrong. You'll be just mixed up. Now, what is the right doctrine? What does he mean? Well, it's the faith of the gospel. That's what he's speaking of. Now, I've been over this many times before, but I don't want you to forget that when the Bible talks about the faith in this manner, he's not speaking about personal salvation. That's that's an area of faith, of course, our personal salvation. But that's not what he's speaking about here. When he says, the faith... He's talking about the body of faith. He's speaking about all the doctrines that we hold, the entire complement of Christian doctrine. And he says, you are to strive together to defend that faith. Stand up for that doctrine. There are some people who say, well, well, Christianity, that's all right. There are good principles in Christianity, but what we really need to do is reach beyond that. We need, we need to consider more. And so what we really ought to do is take the good things out of all religions and let's make that our faith. And so we reach into Islam and we find whatever's good there, if you can find anything. And we reach into Buddhism and whatever's good there. And we go into Hinduism, whatever's good there. And we bring all that together and we make that our faith. Many people try to do that. The Pope's busy trying to do that right now. The Antichrist will do that when he comes. I mean, uh, the Pope, for instance, wants to reach out to Muslims right now. And why does he do that? Because he will make the statement well, we're all the children of God. The biggest lie that was ever told is about the universal fatherhood of God and the universal brotherhood of man. It does not exist. Paul did not contend for the conglomeration of Roman and Greek mythology and for the philosophies of Plato and Socrates and the faith of Jesus Christ. That's not what he contended for. He contended for the faith. That's the doctrines delivered by Christ and the apostles and that's what we're to stand for. Now in this faith, there are certain irreducible minimums. There are things that you must have to be in this faith. Now, I happen to think that there are a few more things that are a part of the faith. Maybe they're not all irreducible minimums, but there are more things in the faith that that we need to consider, and that's uh, why I'm a Baptist, and that's why I'm not a generic Christian. I'm a Baptist because I think that there are more things contained in the faith that we stand for. Now, certainly this... An irreducible minimum of the faith is justification by faith alone without the deeds of the law. Now, when I say that, that means that we're automatically going to exclude a lot of people who quote-unquote are Christians. We're going to exclude the Roman Catholic Church. And why do we do that? Because the Roman Catholic Church says in their own catechism that if a person says that they are justified Through faith alone, by faith alone, they are to be cursed. So we exclude them. It's a bare minimum to say that Jesus Christ is eternal God. That he's one with the Heavenly Father and he's one with the Holy Spirit. The full deity of Jesus Christ must be affirmed. That is a minimum doctrine. Now what do we do? We exclude Jehovah's Witnesses. We exclude Mormons because they do not believe in the full deity of Jesus Christ, that he's one with the Father and one with the Holy Spirit. Unfortunately, we're going to exclude, and I don't hope anybody gets mad about it tonight, but you're going to exclude some Pentecostals that are non-Trinitarian, because they don't believe, they don't believe in the full Trinity, in the Father and the Holy Spirit, that that's one God. Then it's also an irreducible minimum to believe in the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ on the cross. You must believe that Jesus' death on the cross was in the sinner's place and that Christ's blood was satisfaction to God for the penalty of our sins. You must believe that our sins have been placed upon Jesus Christ and only by his righteousness being transferred to us, being imputed to us, can we stand righteous before God. That's going to throw out some others. That means that we're going to throw out the Phineites. You may not even know who that is. Do a little reading, maybe you'll find out. But they don't believe in the imputation of Christ's righteousness. You must believe, I think, in a literal hell as punishment for those who die die in sin without Jesus Christ. Now, I want you to pay attention to what I'm saying because I'm not saying I'm trying to add a lot of things to the gospel of Christ. I'm talking about the faith. I'm talking about what Paul says, contending for the faith. So if we're going to throw out those who are not contending for the faith, who do not believe in a literal burning hellfire, for those that reject Christ as their Savior, you're going to throw out Billy Graham and a whole lot of evangelicals because no longer do they believe in a literal hell burning with fire. Most of them will simply say anymore, well, hell just means separation from God. Hell just means that you're going to be apart from God. That's not what the Bible teaches. You certainly will be apart from God, but you will suffer in a literal burning fire of hell if you don't trust in Jesus Christ. You also must believe in the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ and in his second coming. And when you get to that, you're going to throw out a whole lot more because they're not defenders of the faith on this. So this is what Paul is talking about when he says, the faith. Now, there are a lot of things, as I said a minute ago, that are not minimums. Not irreducible minimums for the faith. For instance, baptism. That's not an irreducible minimum for the faith. Now, I think it's important. And unless you believe in baptismal regeneration, it's not an irreducible minimum. Now, if you do, then you've already thrown out justification by faith alone. So you're going to eliminate, you know, those Catholics and the Mormons and churches of Christ and and even some Lutherans are going to be eliminated by the belief of baptismal regeneration. So baptism, though, is not an irreducible minimum. It's very important. It's an important church doctrine. It must be practiced correctly in order to constitute a true church of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's absolutely essential. And these things, such as baptism, what we believe about other doctrines, they are are what define us in ways as being the true church of the Lord Jesus Christ. So I believe that when Paul says here, let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ, this is what he has in mind. He means personal integrity, faithful tenacity, spiritual unity, and doctrinal purity. Now let's go on very quickly. Not only do we have a calling to a higher life, but number two, there are the consequences of a holy life. Look at verse 28 and 29. And in nothing terrified by your adversaries which is to them an evident token of perdition, but to you of salvation and that of God. For unto you it is given in the behalf of Christ, not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for his sake. The first consequence of a holy life is the identification of your enemies. If you want to know exactly who is opposed, just let it be known that you're a Christian. Now, now more than just a Christian, though, the kind of Christian that Paul talks about in verse number 27, one who strives for the faith of the gospel. And I promise you, if you're that kind of Christian, you won't end up being the most popular person at work. You won't be the most popular person in your school if you stand, if you're a kind of Christian who strives for the faith of the gospel. Now, thank the Lord for this. We don't see the kind of persecution they had in those early churches. We're not sitting in jail like the Apostle Paul was when he wrote this. We don't, we don't go through that, but we still know who our enemies are. It's no secret who our enemies are enemies to the cause of Christ. You know, it's remarkable that in our schools and in our government, they're actually trying to protect people against Christianity. Any religion but Christianity is favored. I mean, anything but that's tolerated. But when you become a Christian then you're automatically classified over here with all the ogres. And what we must absolutely do is protect the women and children from Christianity. Has anybody ever notice though, that Muslims are not well known as humanitarians? Did you ever get that picture? Has anybody ever noticed that hospitals, before they you know, before it became actually big business, that hospitals were run, run by Christians? And in most cases today, or many cases, they still are run by Christians. Have you ever noticed that in soup kitchens you don't see a whole lot of atheists running things? Did anybody ever notice that in Muslim countries that, that they're not known for the health and prosperity of their oppressed peoples? Not at all. I mean, have you seen how much the Arab oil sheiks share with their population? I've never, been to, I've never been to Dubai, is that what it is? that gives you an idea who's got the wealth and what they're doing with it. And yet, you let it be known that you are a Christian and that you're somebody who lives out the principles that even allowed this country to be great, then you'll find out who your enemies are. Paul says, don't be terrified of them and don't be afraid. Now, there in that verse, the word terrified, it's kind of an interesting interesting word because it's not terrified in the sense that, that you quake and you shake in your boots at your enemies. Paul expected that when he wrote to, to these Christians in Philippi that they would not be terrified in the sense that they're just so afraid of their enemies that they can't function. That's not what terrified means in the verse. Let me read to you what Alexander McLaren wrote. Some of you may know who he is. He was a, an English Baptist preacher at the turn of the century. But he wrote this. He said, the word rendered terrified properly refers to a horse shying or plunging at some object. It is generally things half seen and mistaken for something more dreadful than themselves that make horses shy. And it's usually a half look at adversaries and a mistaken estimate of their strength that make Christians afraid. If you lived in Paul's day, you would have every reason to be afraid of what could happen to you because you were a Christian. But there are many Christians in the day who said, take your best shot at me, take your best shot You can kill my body, but you can't kill my soul. And this is what Paul is talking about. Every Christian that he's writing to there knows that suffering for Christ is not the worst thing that can happen to you. Now, Paul, or rather Peter, had a unique way of looking at it. He said in 1 Peter chapter 1, that the trial of your faith being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. Who would think that the trial of your faith could be more precious than gold? And yet that's what Peter describes it as. So when you live for Christ, you're going to bring those enemies out of the woodwork. You'll be able to identify them. Now, not only that, the consequence of a holy life is, secondly, destruction of your enemies. Now, I want to give you the next one right here in order because these two things go together. The third one is verification of your salvation. When the opposition comes out, that is a sign. It will be a sign of the destruction of your enemies. And at the very same time, it's verification of your salvation. And the reason I say that is because the opposition would not be there if you weren't saying something, doing something, standing for something that's very offensive to people. You see, when Jesus went through Galilee, when he preached the gospel and he said, repent or you're going to perish, people didn't like that. They were very upset at what Jesus had to say. And Jesus told his followers, he said, don't worry about that. They're offended by what you say. Don't worry about that at all. Don't be surprised because it happened to me. It's going to happen to you. So your correctness and your salvation is verified by the fact that people oppose you, that there's persecution over it. But the same is a sign of your enemy's destruction. Now, Peter says that trials will refine us, but he also said that those trials, those who bring the trials, are going to stand in judgment. And this is what he says in Second Peter 2, verse 9. The Lord knoweth how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust unto the day of punishment to be punished. Judgment to be punished. So there's no surprise that it's going to happen. Paul says in verse number 29, For unto you it is given in the behalf of Christ not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for his sake. What Paul's doing here in this verse, he's actually giving these Christians in Philippi assurance by what you might call a backdoor approach. It's the back way in. Now here they are thinking, well, this is so hard. Christianity is so difficult. It has to be easier than this. I mean, why do we have to go through all these things? But Paul says, hold on just a minute. This is really something that you ought to be thankful for because Christ is showing you that you actually do belong to him. You're a true believer. So no persecution. If you didn't have any, that means something must be wrong with what you're teaching and what you believe. So if you have opposition, you have that verification. Now, whenever Osteen... And that crowd gets up, and they start to preach about the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. Do you know that that actually ruins assurance? It affects a person's assurance of their salvation. And you say, well, how is that possible? This way. Because if you don't have health, wealth, and prosperity, the natural conclusion is there's something wrong with you. There's something wrong with your faith. You're, you're, You're not standing. You may think you are, but you're really not. Your faith is not good enough. Because if it was good enough, you'd be healthy. You would be wealthy. You'd have everything that you need. Because God doesn't want you to suffer. God doesn't want you to have hardship in your life. God has something better for you than that. That stands absolutely contrary to what the Apostle Paul says. All of that is a bunch of the devil's lies. It's all foolishness. Because Paul said, right here in this verse, it is given by Christ to suffer suffer. For his sake. That's part of your assurance. If you get it, it's part of your assurance. So here we see, right at the end of chapter 1, there are more reasons why Paul is content. And you say, well, how can he be? Here he's in jail. He's suffering for the cause of Christ. He is content because he has assurance. There's one more way that he knows that he is absolutely dead on with the truth of God's word. He suffered because he's a child of God. Jesus suffered and so he suffered. Now, he goes on in verse number 30 to say, having the same conflict which he saw in me and now here to be in me. And so, in other words, he's saying, this is why you have troubles too. This is why you're going through those kinds of experiences. Now, he says, you are suffering the same thing that I experienced when I was there. What did Paul experience in Philippi? We all ought to know the story of the Philippian jailer. He and Silas were beaten and thrown into the prison. And so now Paul says, you're going through that too because the inevitable outcome of your standing for the Lord is that people will hate you, they'll be against you, they'll oppose you, and they will persecute you. That is the inevitable outcome of living a holy life. You will suffer for the cause of Christ if you decide that you're going to live for Him. Just thank God it's not the same kind of suffering that they went through. Some way, somehow, you're going to be affected by it. So chapter 1 ends on a very practical note. What we have is a practical application of Philippians chapter 1, verse number 6. This is God performing his work in you. So what is God doing? Your suffering is part of what conforms you to the image of Christ. Christ suffered, and so those that are faithful will also suffer. Now, I'm almost through. I can't leave this without noting just one other thing that most people overlook in these last verses of this chapter. Now, if you if you study the Bible correctly, and you watch what you're reading here, you will be able to spot the doctrine that sometimes people overlook. Look at verse number 29 again. For unto you it is given in the behalf of Christ, and underline it, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. Now, most people can get the last part, They understand that. I mean, the suffering part, we understand that. But there's also great doctrine just before that. He says, it is given, it is given not only to believe in him. You know what that means? It means that your faith is a gift of God. It means that your faith does not come from within you. It means that faith is not, as some people teach, a dormant seed that's been left over from the fall, and it's just waiting to be activated. You don't have any faith, except God gives you faith. And so when God gives faith, that's something that's fresh and new when he regenerates a person from spiritual death. So you never believe, the preacher says, who says things like, thank God, you've heard me say it before, thank God you have the good sense to believe. Your faith is given by God. And if not for God, you never would believe anything that the Bible says. So here's your last statement tonight. It is a privilege to believe in and to suffer for Christ. What Paul is saying is as much as God grants your faith, he also grants your suffering. And so in verse number 29, we have two very important doctrines that are taught. One is assurance, and the other is salvation itself. Salvation and assurance are both taught in that one verse and in in towards the end of this chapter. So when you suffer, you'll never say, Well, it must be because Christ doesn't love me. I'm suffering, I'm having hardships because God does not love me. Never say that because Jesus comes right back and he says to you, Oh, yes, I do. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the opportunity to look into your word tonight. Lord, I I do pray that you would speak to our hearts and help us to understand that what we go through, difficulties that we have, are all part of our faith in you. And... Lord, help us to trust in you for everything that we receive. Thank you for everything that we receive. And know, Lord, that we're just sinners saved by the grace of God. Help us to be content in our lives knowing that our faith works in us, that patience that we need to endure all things. Lord, bless in this service, and this invitation tonight, and we just give you the praise for all things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.